It's a pleasure to welcome you on this beautiful Sunday morning. Just before we begin, a reminder as we've been giving uh, this reminder every week at the end of the service, when you're ready to leave, please just stand up and move directly to the exit, keeping a two meter distance from others. And then again, as our pattern has been recently, we are meeting again this evening, online only this time, 6 p.m., and that will be followed by uh, coffee time. After we've continued in Matthew's Gospel, there will be an online uh, coffee time as well. And then this Thursday, we're having another one of our online times of prayer, and I encourage you to join in with that if you're able to. And that's all I need to mention before we start. So let's begin our time, first of all, with uh, just a pause to be quiet and to focus our attention, and then let's speak to our God in prayer. Lord God, Father, Son, and Spirit, as we come to you, we remember Jesus' words to Martha as Martha was distracted by her busyness, as she went about worried and upset about many things. We remember that Jesus looked at her sister Mary, who sat at his feet listening to him, and Jesus said, Mary has chosen what is better. As we hear those words of Jesus, we know they are not a call for us to abandon our responsibilities. They're not a call for us to opt out of life. But they are a call to prioritize Him. To focus on Him first and foremost. Your word tells us when our focus is on Jesus, we are better able to face our daily responsibilities. A focus on Jesus gives us the strength and wisdom we need for life. So in this time we have together, we want to shift our focus from wherever it has been to where it needs to be. We want to lift our gaze from the pressures of life to the giver of life from the fears of life to the one who said, do not be afraid for I am with you. That is our desire and we ask you, our Father in heaven, to help us in our weakness. Send your spirit to minister to each one of us. Glorify your son in this time we have together. Amen. Our first song picks up on what we've just prayed. It's a continuation of our prayer. Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart. No. 
see our God for who he is, then obedience to him begins to be a natural thing for us, not a frightening thing. We're going to have a Bible reading now that shows us how sad it is, though, when our focus remains fixed on other things. We're going to read from Mark chapter 10, beginning at verse 17. Mark chapter 10, verse 17. been angry with the uh, disciples because of their behavior towards uh, children. Uh, the Lord Jesus um, uh, gives the children a hug and blesses them and then moves on his way. Uh, lots to do. 
So from verse 17, uh, headed the rich young man. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? <coughs> Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, do not defraud. Honour your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said. Go, sell everything you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. <coughs> at this the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Peter said to him, You have left, we have left everything to follow you. I tell you the truth, Jesus replied. No one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, fields. And with them, persecutions. And in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. This is God's word. The young man thought it was just too risky to obey Jesus. For him, his money was what he depended on. That's where his focus was. 
It wasn't too hard for him, he said, not to murder people. It wasn't too hard for him to avoid adultery and to avoid stealing. He personally didn't find it hard to honor his father and mother. But for this man, giving up his money was the one thing he couldn't do. And our next song shows that when we get our gaze onto Jesus, however, everything else does find its proper and right place in our lives. The song is All I Once Held Dear.
Last week, we had an introduction to the book of Deuteronomy. The opening verses of chapter 1 set the scene for us. They showed us that what we have in this book is a series of sermons Moses preached to the Israelites. And at this point, they're camped east of the Jordan River. They're looking across the river to the promised land of Canaan on the west. And what Moses does in this book is he proclaims God's words to the people. God's instruction. And he begins that instruction not with a series of laws, but with their own history. Moses takes the people back 40 years to the time their parents stood at Mount Sinai, also known as Horeb. As these Israelites stand east of the Jordan, faced with the challenge to choose life, Moses instructs them by talking about the opportunities and the mistakes of their parents. He began, as we saw last week, by reminding them of God's promise to Abraham to give Canaan to Abraham's descendants. And Moses also reminded them how, when their parents were at Sinai, they had already experienced a major dose of God's blessing. They had already grown into a nation at that point just as God had promised Abraham. So as Moses spoke to the Israelites at Horeb, he was encouraging them to go in and take possession of Canaan. They were to trust God's promise that God would give them the land. And Moses could point to evidence that God's promises could be trusted. He had already fulfilled his promise to make Abraham's descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. And now, as we pick up this morning in chapter 1, verse 19, Moses continues the story. He reminds these Israelites who are east of the Jordan what happened next. After their parents at Horeb heard the Lord's command to go in and take possession of the land of Canaan. Canaan is going to be referred to here as the hill country of the Amorites. So we'll read from verse 19 through to the end of the chapter, verse 46. Then, as the Lord our God commanded us, we set out from Horeb and went towards the hill country of the Amorites. Through all that vast and dreadful wilderness that you have seen, and so we reached Kadesh Barnea. Then I said to you, you have reached the hill country of the Amorites, which the Lord our God is giving us. See, the Lord your God has given you the land. Go up and take possession of it. As the Lord, the God of your ancestors, told you, do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Then all of you came to me and said, let us send men ahead to spy out the land for us and bring back a report about the route we are to take and the towns we will come to. The idea seemed good to me, so I selected 12 of you, one man from each tribe. They left and went up into the hill country and came to the valley of Eshcol and explored it. Taking with them some of the fruit of the land, they brought it down to us and reported, it is a good land that the Lord our God is giving us. 
but you were unwilling to go up. You rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. You grumbled in your tents and said, the Lord hates us. So he brought us out of Egypt to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us. Where can we go? Our brothers have made our hearts melt in fear. They say the people are stronger and taller than we are. The cities are large with walls up to the sky. We even saw the Anakites there. Then I said to you, do not be terrified. Do not be afraid of them. The Lord your God, who is going before you, will fight for you, as he did for you in Egypt, before your very eyes, and in the wilderness. There you saw how the Lord your God carried you, as a father carries his son, all the way you went until you reached this place. In spite of this, you did not trust in the Lord your God, who went ahead of you on your journey in fire by night and in cloud by day to search out places for you to camp and to show you the way you should go. When the Lord heard what you said, he was angry and solemnly swore, no one from this evil generation shall see the good land I swore to give your ancestors. Except Caleb, son of Jephunneh. He will see it, and I will give him and his descendants the land he set his feet on, because he followed the Lord wholeheartedly. Because of you, the Lord became angry with me also, and said, you shall not enter it either. But your assistant, Joshua, son of Nun, will enter it. Encourage him, because he will lead Israel to inherit it. And the little ones that you said would be taken captive, your children who do not yet know good from bad, they will enter the land. I will give it to them, and they will take possession of it. But as for you, turn round and set out towards the desert along the route to the Red Sea. Then you replied, we have sinned against the Lord. We will go up and fight as the Lord our God commanded us. So every one of you put on his weapons, thinking it easy to go up into the hill country. But the Lord said to me, tell them, do not go up and fight because I will not be with you. You will be defeated by your enemies. So I told you, but you would not listen. You rebelled against the Lord's command, and in your arrogance, you marched up into the hill country. The Amorites who lived in those hills came out against you. They chased you like a swarm of bees and beat you down from Seir all the way to Horma. You came back and wept before the Lord, but he paid no attention to your weeping and turned a deaf ear to you. And so you stayed in Kadesh many days all the time you spent there. This is God's Word. And it tells us how trusting God's promises and obeying His commands can seem like a risky business, a dangerous gamble. But as Moses speaks to these Israelites east of the Jordan, 
as he instructs them through the story of their parents, he challenges them to consider that idea. Is trusting God's commands and obeying his promises a risky business? And the answer Moses gives is that the Israelites who left Horeb got it badly, badly wrong. The truly risky business is not trusting and obeying God. The truly dangerous gambles are unbelief and arrogance. In fact, unbelief and arrogance are gambles that never pay off. They always lead to loss and defeat. And the lesson here is important for you and me as well. Because we are prone to the kind of thinking the Israelites had. Now God isn't calling us to march into battle against Canaanites. But he does call us to live for him in a society that largely rejects him. And we can be quick to decide that even that is too risky a business. So we need this instruction ourselves from Israel's history. And the first thing we need to see is how the situation Israel finds herself in is actually very, very good. Look again at verse 19. Then, as the Lord our God commanded us, we set out from Horeb and went towards the hill country of the Amorites through all that vast and dreadful wilderness that you have seen. And so we reached Kadesh Barnea. We saw last week the current generation of Israelites are here, east of the Jordan. And Moses now is describing their parents' journey from Horeb, also known as Sinai, to Kadesh Barnea, here. Back in verse 2 of this chapter, we're told it's an 11-day journey. But Moses describes it as a journey through a vast and dreadful wilderness. That wilderness is the Sinai Desert. And by the time they got to Kadesh Barnea, they had already seen the Lord's power to preserve and sustain them through that wilderness. And then Moses reminds them they have God's promise to give them the land that's in front of them. Moses reminds them of what we saw last week. God's command is all wrapped up in his promise. You see that in verse 21. See, the Lord your God has given you the land. Go up and take possession of it as the Lord your God God of your ancestors told you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. At that point, the people come to Moses with a proposal. You can see that in verse 22. Then all of you came to me and said, let us send men ahead to spy out the land for us and bring back a report about the route we are to take and the towns we will come to. Now the book of Numbers gives the original account of this in Numbers chapter 13. And there we're given an additional piece of information about this. It tells us the idea was actually from the Lord. He is behind the people's request to Moses, and he confirms to Moses that it's a good idea. And the reason it's a good idea is because the spies will be able to bring back evidence that good things are waiting for them in Canaan. 
That's what the spies do. Numbers 13 gives us more detail about the fruit they bring back. Luscious grapes, pomegranates, and figs. In other words, they bring back evidence that this is a fertile, flourishing place. The produce there is great. That's what the spies mean at the end of verse 25 here when they say, it's a good land that the Lord our God is giving us. Everything is positive. The Lord has already brought them safely through a vast and dreadful wilderness, not to mention the work He did prior to that in getting them out of Egypt. And now the scouts have gone into Canaan and they have confirmed this is a place where we as a people can flourish. Try some of the grapes. So obviously, the Israelites packed up their tents and they marched right into Canaan for more of those grapes and pomegranates and figs. That's what we might expect them to do, given how positive their situation is. The Lord is with them, and good things are waiting right in front of them. But look again at verse 26. But you are unwilling to go up. You rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. You grumbled in your tents and said, the Lord hates us. So he brought us out of Egypt to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us. Why do they react that way? With the evidence they have of God's presence going with them this far, the evidence that Canaan is a good place, why this reaction? Well, it turns out there was more to the spies' report. You see that in verse 28. Our brothers have made our hearts melt in fear. They say the people are stronger and taller than we are. The cities are large with walls up to the sky. We even saw the Anakites there. The Anakites were a particularly tall people. That's mentioned several times in chapter 2. And Numbers 13 says they were a people descended from the Nephilim. According to Genesis chapter 6, the Nephilim were the result of the sons of God mating with the daughters of humans. And whatever the exact details of that were, there was apparently some supernatural element going on with the Nephilim. And that gave their distant relative, the Anakites, a bit of a mystique to them. It added to the intimidation factor of the Anakites. It wasn't just their height that provoked awe and fear in their enemies. Now, interestingly, when the Israelites eventually do fight against the Anakites, they don't prove any harder to defeat than the rest of the peoples in Canaan. But the fact is, the Anakites seem extra scary. And the cities in Canaan seem to be extra big. Spies would say they have walls up to the sky. And so you can see maybe what has happened here. God's intention for the spying mission was to give the Israelites further proof he had good things waiting for them. But the Israelites themselves have a different attitude to the spying mission. In their minds, those spies were out there conducting a risk assessment. 
And as tends to happen with risk assessments, because they have the word risk in the title, the focus ends up being on what might go wrong. So although the scouts say it's a good land, and although the grapes they bring back are certainly juicy, what the people focus on are the bits about the formidable people and the tall city walls. The risk assessment has been handed in, and as far as the Israelites are concerned, the risk is too great. And it's not just the risk to themselves that the people are thinking about. If you glance down for a moment to verse 39, you'll see what the Israelites concluded about their families. They say, our little ones will be taken captive. God is not capable of taking care of our kids. If we obey him, our kids will suffer. And so they decide back up in verse 27, the Lord hates us. He brought us up out of Egypt to destroy us. What has happened? How does a situation that ought to fill them with hope and courage because of what God has already done and because the land in front of them really is good, how do they end up hopeless with their hearts melting in fear? It happens because instead of focusing on what they know to be true about God, they focus instead on the obstacles. They focus on the enemies. They focus on the vulnerability of their children. Daniel Block says, Faithlessness results from faulty vision. Faithless eyes are selective in what they allow to register in the heart. These people are blind to God's gracious providences. And they saw only the obstacles in their road. That's why their hearts are melting in fear. And then look how Moses tries to get them to shift their focus off those obstacles. Verse 29. Then I said to you, do not be terrified. Do not be afraid of them. The Lord your God who is going before you will fight for you as he did for you in Egypt before your very eyes and in the wilderness. There you saw how the Lord your God carried you as a father carries his son. All the way you went until you reached this place. Moses says to the people, you're looking at the wrong thing. Yes, the enemies are real. Yes, the city walls are real. But those are the minor factors in your situation. The major factor, the truly significant thing, is the strength and goodness of God. Tall people and big walls are no obstacles to him. And when it comes to his commitment to you, Moses says, it's the commitment of a father to his son. It's that strong and that deep. So Moses says, change your focus, Israel. And maybe some of us need to hear this. 
Maybe today you are consumed by a particular obstacle, a particular hazard you're facing. And when you hear the call to trust God's promises and live in obedience to Him, your focus actually is on your vulnerability. I'm weak. I'm under pressure. How will this affect my family? How will this affect my future? What are the negative consequences that could come if I obey God's word? What might I lose? What might I miss out on? What might might my kids miss out on? And you conclude, it's just too risky for me in my situation to obey. In one sense, your risk assessment might be all true as far as it goes. But it doesn't go far enough. Because no matter how big the hazards are, the bigger factor is always God himself. Focus on him and your perspective will begin to change. He created the universe. He sent a savior, a divine man, to rescue you from sin. Are you really saying he can't deal with the things you're afraid of today? Are you really saying he's not faithful enough or strong enough to carry you through? When you and I focus on the hazards in front of us rather than the God who's with us, we fall into the really risky business of unbelief. We conclude the Lord is not faithful enough or strong enough. That is what Israel ended up doing. Despite Moses' efforts to change their focus, they keep their focus on the strong enemies and the big city walls. By focusing on the obstacles instead of on God, they get their risk assessment completely wrong. The real risk is not to trust God and not to go forward in obedience. But that is the risk Israel decided to take. And the consequence of that is loss. Look again at those verses beginning in verse 32. Moses says, in spite of this, you did not trust in the Lord your God who went ahead of you on your journey in fire by night and in a cloud by day to search out places for you to camp and to show you the way you should go. When the Lord heard what you said, he was angry and solemnly swore, no one from this evil generation shall see the good land I swore to give your ancestors except Caleb, son of Jephunneh. He will see it, and I will give him and his descendants the land he set his feet on, because he followed the Lord wholeheartedly. Because of you, the Lord became angry with me also, and said, you shall not enter it either, but your assistant Joshua, son of Nun, will enter it. Encourage him, because he will lead Israel in to inherit it. And the little ones that you said would be taken captive, your children who do not yet know good from bad, they will enter the land. I will give it to them and they will take possession of it. But as for you, turn round 
and set out towards the desert along the route to the Red Sea. Caleb and Joshua were among those 12 spies who went into the land. And they also tried to change the people's focus from the obstacles and onto God. And so God says, only Caleb and Joshua will survive to enjoy life in the land. And that means, shockingly, that Moses is among those who will not enter the land. This is the first of several mentions of that in the book. The book of Numbers gives us more details as to why that was. And what we find out is, Moses himself fell into the same mistake as the people. Unbelief. Here he mentions the pressure he was under trying to lead such an unbelieving people. But Numbers chapter 20 describes how Moses became so frustrated with the people that Moses himself publicly disobeyed God. He was given specific instructions by God on how he, the Lord, would provide water for the people. But instead of following God's instructions, Moses chose to grandstand in front of the people. He announced that he and his brother Aaron would provide water for these miserable, ungrateful Israelites. And with a dramatic gesture of his power, Moses whacked a rock with his staff, and water did come out. But God said to Moses on that occasion, because you did not trust me enough to do what I said, you will not enter the land. Moses made the same mistake as the people. And that should give us, I think, pause for thought. Because it shows us what we're talking about here is not just a danger for baby Christians. Those who are looked up to as mature Christians can fall into this too. This unbelief that concludes obedience to God is just too risky for us. Maybe some of us would have to admit we have got older, but we haven't necessarily become more willing to risk trusting God and obeying Him as we've got older. In fact, maybe we would have to say, some of us, we used to be a lot more willing to risk obedience than we are today. Maybe as we've grown older, we've become more prone to focus on the dangers and the hazards. They are looming maybe larger and larger for us, while God's power and his fatherly care are starting to have less and less significance in our thinking. Is that the case for you? Do you need to open your eyes again to God's power and His faithfulness and His ability to carry you as a father carries his son? Do you need this reminder today that 
unbelief is the really risky business because unbelief results in loss. It causes us to miss out on good things God has for us. Good things that lie on the other side of obedience. And notice carefully God's words in verse 39. Those children of yours, the ones you're so worried about right now, because you think they will suffer if you obey me. God says to the people, do you really think you can protect them better than I can? Do you really think you know better than I do about what's best for your children? God says, I will raise up your children to do what you refuse to do. They will move forward in obedience. And they will inherit the blessings you have turned away from. God save us from the terrible mistake of thinking we cannot trust him with our children. Obey him, teach them to obey him, and leave the rest with him. In verse 40, God says to this rebellious generation of Israelites, just turn around. Head back down the road you came, back in the direction of Egypt. Well, that new command then lights a fire under the people. They get all animated when they hear that. Verse 41. Then you replied, we have sinned against the Lord. We will go up and fight as the Lord our God commanded us. So every one of you put on his weapons, thinking it easy to go up into the hell country. But the Lord said to me, tell them, do not go up and fight because I will not be with you. You will be defeated by your enemies. So I told you, but you would not listen. You rebelled against the Lord's command and in your arrogance, you marched up into the hell country. When we read this, we might get thrown off track by the people's confession of sin in verse 41. We might think, well, isn't that good? They've admitted they're wrong. Well, Saying we have sinned can be a good thing if it causes us to genuinely stop and listen to the Lord and then do what he says. But if we say, I have sinned, and then we carry on disobeying the Lord, then our confession doesn't mean jack squat. It doesn't mean a thing. And that's what Israel's doing. They did sin, and their sin caused a change in their circumstances. Their sin had consequences. The road north to Canaan is no longer open to them. God's command now is, turn around and take the road south. And so true repentance would lead the Israelites to follow God's command and take the road south. But this is not true repentance. It's an ancient case of FOMO, fear of missing out. Suddenly, they remember all the good stuff the spies told them about Canaan. They remember now how sweet those grapes really tasted. 
So now they think obeying God's command to go south is too risky. If their previous mistake had been unbelief, now their mistake is belief in themselves rather than in God. It's presumption, arrogance. We can make progress without the Lord. God has told us he won't go with us if we go forward, but we'll go and claim the land on our own. It is a good land. I've often mentioned Martin Luther's comment that God's people can be like a drunk man trying to get on a horse. The man climbs at one side of the horse and he falls off the other side. And he climbs up that side and falls off the other side. That is a good description of what Israel does here. They refuse to trust God's power and commitment to give them the land because the people were too scary and the walls were too big. But now, in trying to correct their error, they decide they can overcome the scary people and the big walls without God. And how often has the church made that mistake? Numbers are down, progress seems to be slow or even non-existent, money is scarce. What are we going to do? Well, let's hire a marketing consultant. Let's focus on being cool and entertaining. Let's hold a bunch of fundraising events. That'll fix the problem. No, it won't. Now, I'm not saying we should try to be obscure. I'm not saying we should try to do things in an out-of-touch, disorganized way. Of course not. But the point is, when the culture around us is in decline, and we seem to be more and more marginalized in our society, we can start grasping at straws. We can start thinking it's too risky to emphasize prayer. It's too risky nowadays to keep teaching the Bible. It's too risky to keep sharing the unfashionable message about sin. Who wants to hear about sin? It's too risky to set forward a crucified Savior as our only escape from hell. Those are the things God calls his church to do. But in our arrogance, we can decide that strategy is a bit too risky. And we'd better come up with something else. Something that's more likely to work. But the fact is, when we take that approach, the consequence is defeat. It certainly was for Israel as they tried to move forward in their own steam. As Moses talks to the Israelites east of the Jordan now, he reminds them what happened to their parents. Verse 44. The Amorites who lived in those hills came out against you. They chased you like a swarm of bees and beat you down from Seir all the way to Hormah. You came back and wept before the Lord, but he paid no attention to your weeping and turned a deaf ear to you. 
The Old Testament often describes Canaan as a land flowing with milk and honey. It's a way of showing how much there is to enjoy there. But without God, the Israelites get not honey, they get a swarm of bees instead. Or at least that's what the Amorite warriors seem like. They're all over the Israelites. Instead of the sweetness they're looking for, the Israelites get badly stung. And yes, the Israelites do plenty of weeping afterwards. But the Lord knows their weeping here is as misguided as their confession of sin was earlier. They haven't yet shown a willingness to actually listen to God and obey Him. If their confession of sin was due to fear of missing out, their tears are due to actually missing out. Now, this is not the end of the story for Israel. Remember, Moses is saying all of this to a new generation. He's reminding them of their history so they won't repeat it. This is instruction for God's people. It's not condemnation. And the lesson the new generation is to take away from this is that ultimately there is no risk involved in trusting God and obeying Him. Now that doesn't mean it's easy. It doesn't mean there are no battles to be fought. It doesn't mean we'll be free from all pain and we'll never suffer any wounds. But it does mean trusting God and obeying Him leads to sure and certain gain. Sure and certain victory. There will be tough battles and there will be wounds. But there is no risk. Not in any ultimate sense. Obedience does lead to solid joys and lasting treasures. The really risky business is to either shrink back from obeying what God has said or to push forward in defiance of what He said. The unbelief that shrinks back from obedience and the arrogance that pushes forward in disobedience, those are just two sides of the same coin. They both come from a failure of focus. Failing to focus on God. Failing to see Him as our loving Father whose promises can be trusted and whose commands are always, always for our good. So this week, as you and I go about our business and as we do those little risk assessments that we do in our head. Wondering if it's really a good idea to obey God today in this situation. As we do those personal risk assessments, let's be clear, the real risk is disobedience. Obedience to God might be hard, but it is not risky. When we obey, God fights for us. And however hard things get, the result will be blessings that we can never lose.
Our last two songs help us respond to what we've heard. First, the first song helps us by reminding us of God's goodness to us. He is our Father, and He paid the greatest price so we could enter into the blessings He has for us. And then our last song is an opportunity for us to recommit to living for our merciful God. You're beautiful beyond description, and then I give you my heart.
Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen.